Thanks, guys. Yeah, I saw that look on your face when he called you a millennial. I don't know why, why you took it that way, but I like millennials. Um, so, have you guys all recovered from last Sunday? The, the uh, whole chapter 19 saga that left us all depressed? And I thought, you know what? It's okay. You know, it was hard. It was hard. It's a hard story. It's hard to preach through all of Sodom is wiped out and Lot's family and all that. And I thought, you know, it's going to be okay because <clears throat> I'm going to go home. The Rams are going to win the Super Bowl. <laughs> so I was on suicide watch the rest of the week last week, but I'm doing better now. Um, but uh, seriously, Genesis 19, well, I talked about this last week. That's just a hard, a hard chapter. It's just a hard story. This is one of the benefits of preaching through books of the Bible. I don't get to skip the hard stuff. And uh, sometimes it's those passages where God wants to speak to us about something. But, you know, just that all of the destruction, all the sin, uh, all of the hardness of heart, the, 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 when you see Lot's whole downfall and, and then ultimately they escape and then his, his wife dies and Finally, they go up to the mountains and you, you think, wow, thank God it's over, but it's not over because then you have this incestuous situation with his daughters and out of that comes the, the Edomites, or excuse me, the Moabites and the Ammonites who we talked about, those, those become perpetual enemies of the people of Israel. Um, it, just, this whole thing is just a complete, complete train wreck. And I thought coming off of that, it would be good for us this week to just think back upon it for a second before we get into chapter 20, because I don't want to leave us with just this sense that it is just nothing but um, sadness and brokenness, <clears throat> because when we closed the scripture last week, that was it. it. It starts out bad, it gets worse, it gets worse from there, and then it... it uh, culminates in something terrible, and then we're done. And I wanted to just let you know something in case you're not aware of this. So out of that situation in the cave comes the Ammonite people and uh, the Moabite people who will later inhabit the land of Canaan and they will make war with the people of Israel and continue to be a thorn in their side. But I want you to know that God is amazing in that he doesn't just leave the chapter closed in brokenness. God is a, is a redeeming God. And so I was thinking about that this week, and I was thinking, you know what? Um, Ruth is a Moabite, and she is in the lineage of who? Jesus. And the wife of Solomon, the mother of Rehoboam, is an Ammonite. And she also is in the lineage of Jesus. And I just got encouraged when I thought about that this week. And I'm like, I got to tell the gang. It, it's so encouraging to just go, okay, wait, I'm not going to say that what happened in Sodom was good. I'm not going to pretend that it's not tragic. But you know what? God is able to work with even tragedy and do something amazing. 
And I'm so thankful that God um, didn't just waste all of that pain and suffering, but out of that, he brought us a Messiah. God has an amazing way of making the most of our mess. And I'm just grateful for that. And we're going to start to see that again in Genesis chapter 20, because we're going to turn our attention now back to the life of Abraham after this little respite for the story of Sodom. And we're going to watch Abraham's journey of faith continue. And we need to remember, as we go into chapter 20, the last thing that we saw concerning Abraham was in chapter 18. So if you just open to Genesis 18 for a second... I want us to look together at verse 10, because if you'll remember, in Genesis 18, that's where um, Abraham and Sarah received these three visitors, one of whom is God, and the other two are angels. The two angels continue their trip on down into Sodom for that whole process of rescuing Lot, Um, and God stays and speaks face to face with Abraham. And that's where we pick it up in Genesis 18, verse 10. Speaking of God, it says, And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now, that's where she laughs and gets in trouble for laughing. Um, But I would have laughed too if I was her. And, uh, but I want you to notice that he says, at this time next year, there will be this son. He's going to come from Abraham and Sarah. None of this surrogate mother stuff. He's going to come from Abraham and Sarah. She is going to give birth to this son sometime in the next year, right? So I'm telling you this because as we go through Genesis, sometimes, you know, we're generally covering most weeks a chapter a week. And as we close the the book on one chapter, we come back a week later and we open to the next chapter and sometimes it's 10 or 15 years later in the story. And I want you to understand the amount of time that has passed now because from this point in chapter 18, uh, it is three days later that Sodom is destroyed. Okay, so you have this discussion, you have Abraham's prayer to spare the city, and then you have a three-day period and then the city is destroyed. Okay, so three days pass, that gets us through chapter 19, and then in chapter 20, we know that very little time has passed because uh, he said that within a year, you will have the son, which means that sometime in the next two to three months, you're going to get pregnant, right? And in chapter 20, we see that, that Sarah is either not yet pregnant, we know that Isaac is not yet born. We see that Sarah is either not yet pregnant or she's so early in her pregnancy that she's not showing. And and you're going to see why when we get to chapter 20 and we start to see how that story unfolds. Um, Now, at first glance, Genesis chapter 20 is uh, basically a bad movie remake. You know, have you, ever, have you ever seen a remake of a movie and they just blew it? Like, did you see the recent Ben-Hur that came out a couple years ago? Like, come on. Who looked at Ben-Hur and said, you know what? We can do better. Yeah. I, right? And then they do Ben-Hur and it stunk. I don't know what you thought of it, but I was like, uh, this, I, give me Charlton Heston back. I, I don't like this movie. And, and that's exactly how I felt as I began to read chapter 20 of Genesis. I'm like, wait a second. 
this sounds like a story I've already heard. Why am I hearing this story again? Um, because uh, I'm not going to learn much from a story I've already heard. It, it, it's just like the story that's in chapter 12. As it turns out, chapter 20 is a very important chapter in the story that Moses is trying to tell. Because any good author uses foreshadowing. Now, I'm sure you've heard that term, and maybe you're going back to high school trying to remember what foreshadowing is all about. I, uh, I was an English major in college, so I had to sit through all those classes and write papers on these kind of things. So uh, foreshadowing is basically when early in a book or a story, the author drops hints about things or tells a story that is going to set a theme that is going to um, find its completion later on in the story. And then when you see it completed later on in the story, you go, oh, I get it. That's what foreshadowing is. And generally, every good author uses it, whether they're writing fiction or history or biography or whatever, foreshadowing is used all the time. Um, and it, it's used to draw attention to a theme that is developing. So Moses is no different. There is a pattern that begins to develop here in chapter 20, and it carries on right through the rest of the book of Genesis, and we need to pay attention to it. Otherwise, we're going to miss something really, really important. So go to Genesis chapter 20, and let's begin to read in verse 1. Now, Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in Gerar. Okay, now let me just help you understand those terms that are unfamiliar. The Negev, we've heard that mentioned several times. It's the southern part of the region, okay? So he's going from where he was in the hillside above the Valley of Sodom, and he's going back down south, halfway to Egypt, basically. So he's between um, where he was and Egypt in this area called the Negev. And he settles between Kadesh and Shur, and he stays in a town called Gerar. And Gerar is um, the city of the Philistines. So the Philistines, as you know, figure into the story as you keep reading through Genesis and Exodus and uh, further on through Joshua and, and on through 1st and 2nd Kings. The Philistines become a, a big part of the story, right? So he's now in the land of the Philistines. Okay, verse 2. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, does that sound familiar? This is exactly what happened in chapter 12 when he went down to Egypt and he got to Egypt and he said, hey, we're going to tell everybody you're my sister because you're beautiful and I'm afraid they're going to, to kill me in order to get you. So if they think you're my sister, then they'll leave us alone. So they told that lie when they went down to Egypt and that lie resulted in Pharaoh taking Sarai as his wife. And God intervenes and puts a curse on Pharaoh and his, his household until he releases her back to Abraham. And when he releases her back, he not only didn't touch her when he had her as his wife, but he gives her back to Abraham along with great riches. Remember that? Gives them, gives them gold and silver and animals, livestock and uh, slaves, all of this, and enriches Abram and then kicks him out of Egypt, so he leaves. So essentially, he goes down to Egypt, tells a lie, uh, puts his wife and himself at risk, 
and gets enriched for it and leaves. And that's the whole, th- the whole story of the trip down to Egypt. And now we see this exactly happening again. This time they're not in the land of the Egyptians. They're in the land of the Philistines. And this is not Pharaoh, but this is Abimelech. Now, you need to know this also. The, the name Abimelech is not a proper name. It's a title. So it's just like Pharaoh, right? Or Caesar, they're, they're all known as Pharaoh. They're all known as Caesar. And if you're the king of the Philistines, you are known as Abimelech. So we're going to run into more Abimelechs as we continue to read the Old Testament, but there's never the same guy. So he goes down to um, Gerar, and now Abimelech takes his wife. And just as it was in the 12th chapter, it's unfolding again. And Abraham sits back and lets it happen. Now, once again, God intervenes. Look at verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart, you've done this. And I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he's a prophet and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Whew. That is dodging a bullet, right? He takes her to be part of his harem, basically, but he doesn't touch her. He goes to bed that night, and he has this dream where God appears to him in a dream and says, dude, here's the deal. You can give her back to her rightful husband, or I'm going to kill you and everyone you know. (laughs) That's basically what happens, right? And he goes, hey... I didn't know. He said it was his sister. She said, I'm his sister. I had no idea. How are you going to blame me? How are you going to hold my people accountable for this thing? I didn't do anything. And so God steps in and he protects Sarah and Abraham in spite of the lie. Right? But when I was reading this, I just thought, what if he hadn't stepped in? What, what if God had just let this happen? Now, now think about the big picture. Think about the promise, right? I'm going to give you a child. There's a child coming sometime in the next six to 12 months, right? There's going to be a pregnancy. What if he had touched her? And there's no paternity tests. There's no way to know who the father of this child is, and suddenly the integrity and the power of God is in question because he had made this promise, and nobody knows what's become of it. Isn't it awesome to know that God gives us free will, and and he will let us do really dumb stuff with our free will, but that he doesn't just walk away from us and let us always face all the consequences that there could be there? God had a plan. And his plan was not going to be thwarted because Abraham was a little sissy girl. And he was afraid 
to stand up and tell the truth. So God steps in. And again, I want to take you back to Proverbs chapter 3. I keep mentioning this passage. In Proverbs 3, verse 5, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. I, I keep getting this message over and over again from Abraham's life. So many times when Abraham gets off track, what is it that he does? He ceases to trust in the Lord with all of his heart, right? And he begins to trust in himself. He begins to take matters into his own hands. He says, I'll take care of this. I got this covered. I have a better plan. I know a better way. And he begins to do that. Can you imagine a person doing that? No, no. Well, God had made some promises. And here's the thing about God. He always keeps his promises. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, it says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, the word faithless here and faithful, it's not just talking about the amount of faith that you have, right? God doesn't have any faith. Did you know that? Faith is to, is to believe that which is unseen. God knows everything. There's nothing that he's waiting on to find out. When it talks about God's faithfulness, it's not talking about he has a lot of faith. It's talking about the fact that he is trustworthy. He is loyal. He is willing to finish what he begins. He is faithful, right? And, and so God is faithful, and it says he remains faithful even when I am not. He remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. What does he cannot deny himself mean? It means basically this. God must act within his nature as God, right? So the old question, is there anything God cannot do? There are many things God cannot do, but we can wrap it up this way. God cannot be not God, right? God cannot act outside of his nature as God. He cannot do something that would be in, in um, you know, conflict with who he is. And he is at the core faithful. It's not that he acts faithfully. It's not that he uh, is faithful because he acts faithfully. He acts faithfully because he is faithful. It's who he is. And God is always going to be faithful. And Abraham seems to be looking for ways to mess this thing up, doesn't he? He seems to be just looking for ways to take matters into his own hands, and he keeps messing everything up, and God keeps running in and saving the day because God has made a promise, and God is faithful. So in spite of Abraham's weak faith, our faithful God stepped in and he saved the day. Now pick it up in verse 8. So Abimelech arose early in the morning. I, I, I think that's funny. He's half as he has a dream, right? I mean, the moment the sun pierces the sky, he is out of bed and gathering people. He is not going to wait at all. He is taking this seriously. Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all the things in their hearing, and the men were greatly afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. 
And Abimelech said to Abraham, what have you encountered that you have done this thing? So first thing he does, first thing in the morning, he gets up and begins to deal with what God spoke to him about in his dream, right? And it says, he called Abraham. Now, don't, don't read that with 21st century eyes. That doesn't mean he called Abraham, right? That's what you and I would do. But he doesn't call him, he summoned him, right? So Abraham comes to him and he has a face-to-face audience with Abraham and he basically lays it on the table and says, what have you done? And he says it this way, he goes, have, have I done something to you? Is there, are you mad at me for something? Is there some reason that you would pull me into a mess like this? What is wrong with you? Why have you done this? Because I'm telling you, this ought not to be done. What you've done is not right. And so I find this interesting because Abimelech is the king of the Philistines. And when you're telling the story of God and his people, every time you use the word Philistines, people boo, right? The Philistines are the bad guys. And here's Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, and he is handling this situation with more integrity than Abraham, the father of the faithful. He goes directly to Abraham and confronts him face to face. Now, if you give me a second for a little side note, let me just pull this little nugget out. Um, 90% of relational problems would be solved if we would follow Abimelech's example. I'm telling you guys, I'm a, I'm a counselor. And I'm telling you, 90% of human relationship problems would be solved if somebody was just responsible enough to sit down face-to-face with the person that they have a conflict with and speak the truth in love and deal with what needs to be dealt with. 90% of marriage conflicts, 90% of uh, parenting conflicts, 90% of conflicts within the body of Christ, if we would just handle it that way, don't stew in it and become bitter. Don't go look for somebody to gossip about with it, uh, gossip to about it. Don't jump to conclusions and make assumptions that you don't know are true. Don't hold a secret grudge and just swear that person off. Don't give them the silent treatment until they learn their lesson. Don't try to look for a way to get even. Just go to the person directly, privately, respectfully, and lovingly and have the discussion. And I know that's awkward, and I know it's uncomfortable, and that's why we would rather not do it, and we suffer in our relationships because of that. Okay, side note over. Let's get back to the story. (laughs) That is what Abimelech did. And, And look how Abraham responded. Look at verse 11. Abraham said, because I thought, surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Isn't this interesting? They decided on this plan before they left on their journey. 
It said, we're going to be sojourning in all these places. We're going to be passing through all these lands. There's going to be people that are going to not have our best interests at heart. So when, wherever we go, here's the deal. We're going to say we're brother and sister. And, and so they planned this from the beginning, which explains why they used the same tactic in Egypt and the same tactic uh, in, among the Philistines. Um, and it's apparent later that they keep using the same tactic. So when you think about that, think about this. Right before they made that plan to lie, God said to Abraham, I will bless you. I will give you a son. I will make you a great nation. I will make your name great. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. In other words, in our vernacular, God said, don't worry about a thing. I got your back. I'm always going to have your back. It's going to be fine. All you need to do is walk with me and I will take care of the rest. And he says, yes, Lord. Now, Sarah, here's what we're going to do. We're going to lie if we get it, right? And, and you, you look at that and you go, man, what a knucklehead. And again, I say, he looks a lot like me. And so this is their plan, right? And apparently they've been sticking to that plan wherever they went. And of course, their lie was what we call a half-truth, right? Because he says, he says, besides, she actually is my sister. She's, she's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And, and because that's so uh, strange to our culture, you have to understand, in these days, this was absolutely the common way that things were done, especially for patriarchs. If anybody had any wealth and any power and authority and that sort of thing, they generally had multiple wives, and so you would have multiple wives and you would provide multiple households so that each wife had her own household. And then, then you would have children with all those wives and the, they would be raised up in that household. And essentially, that was the neighborhood in which all the kids grew up together and that's who you met and that's who you married. And so he's married to his half-sister. But when he tells people, she is my sister, he's not trying to tell them the truth. He's trying to deceive them, right? The implication is, she's my sister, therefore she's obviously not my wife, right? So, uh, the, the, the purpose of a half-truth is to deceive. That's why we call a half-truth a lie. And this kind of deception had become Abraham's pattern. And just like in Egypt, his deception seemed to work. Look at verse 14. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. So he gives them land. And then to Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Now, that's 25 pounds of silver. Behold, it's, it, it, it is your vindication before all, you are, uh, before all who are with you and before all the men uh, you are cleared. Okay? Now, I just got to spend a second on verse 16. I love the fact that he says, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. <laughs> I, I, you know, I can't, I can't swear to this, but I pretty much bet the ranch that he said, Behold, I've given your brother 
a thousand pieces of silver, right? And, and he gives them all of this wealth, lets them settle wherever they want, gives them land, and guess what? No harm, no foul. It worked again. Except it didn't. See, sometimes when we sin, it seems to improve our life, at least in the short run. But let me tell you what the scripture says. The wages of sin is death. And so the enemy is always going to try to convince us that this sin will be okay for these justifiable reasons. This sin will be okay because it'll actually make things better. But there's a verse in Proverbs 14. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There's a way that seems right, but if it's not God's way, it's going to lead to death. And we're about to see that truth exemplified in the life of Abraham because when Moses wrote Genesis 12, he knew Genesis 20 was coming, right? So he told us that story knowing the story's coming. And, and by the way, when he wrote Genesis 20, he knew that Genesis 26 was coming. And he knew that Genesis 27 was coming. And he knew the rest of the book of Genesis was coming in which we would see this pattern lived out over and over and over and over again because this pattern is going to characterize the life of Abraham and his people. So I don't know about you, but I'm just going to be honest and talk about me for a second. There have been many times in my life when I have given in to some kind of temptation, thinking it's no big deal, it's just this once. And then it'll be over. It's just, it's just going to be once. And, and you know what? I, I know God's gracious. I'll, I'll confess. He'll forgive. It's just once. It's not that big of a deal. I've also had this justification. This is not a big deal because it just affects me. It's not going to hurt anybody. It's, this is just a private thing, and I'm willing to pay the price. But it not affecting anybody else is never true, is it? Here's the thing. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. We use the illustration of links in a chain. My life is connected to other people. And my life is connected to other moments in time. P picture this. I should have brought a, uh, done this, but, but if I have a rope, the end of a rope in my hand, and I wave it up and down like that, the whole rope moves, doesn't it? Not just the part of my hand. And, and what's happening is way down the rope, the timeline of your life, oftentimes you're sin revisits there, or, or way down the relationship line of your life, you see the connections. Every moment in my life has a domino effect. Abraham told a couple of half-truths to a couple of total strangers for a very good reason, right? And his little half-truths seemed to work out just fine for him. But this was just the beginning of a pattern of dishonesty for Abraham and his family. Let's take a look. I don't want to give too much away because, you know, there's still 30 chapters left. 
I want you guys to come back, right? But, but um, I want us to take a look ahead a little bit and just get a glance at what happens with the rest of the book of Genesis as far as Abraham and his family are concerned. Because well, we're going to see there's a principle that is exemplified in this. And we can see it in our own lives and we're going to see it in his life. Our children will tend to copy our actions. How many of you said, when I grow up, I'll never act like that, right? And then you find yourself saying the same, I'll give you something to cry about. (laughs) 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 Oh my God, I just heard my dad. Where did that come from, right? And, and, And our children tend to mimic us, right? They will copy our actions without holding to our boundaries, Think about Abraham's life. A couple of half-truths to a couple of total strangers for a really good reason. But Abraham eventually does have this son, Isaac, right? And Isaac lives out the same story. Go to chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26, verse 1. Now Abraham is gone, and now we're on to the story of Isaac. Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Now this is a different Abimelech, right? But it's the same place, and it's the king of the Philistines. Verse 2, the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt, stay in the land of which I will tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants, I will give all these lands, and I will establish an oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and I will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws, so Isaac lived in Gerar. Now, does that sound familiar? He's repeating the promises he had made to Abraham, right? He's doing the same thing he did to Abraham. He's saying, listen, I want to make sure you understand because times are going to get tough. You're going to get confused. You're not going to know what's going on. You're going to get scared. I want you to know this. I promise you, I've made an oath. I have entered into a covenant. I will bless you. I will give you many descendants. I will bless those descendants and make them a great nation. And I will bless the entire earth through you. You can count on it. I have you covered, right? So Isaac, verse 6, lived in Gerar. Verse 7, when the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he was afraid to say, my wife, thinking the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful. Like, if you didn't know this was the word of God, you would say, this is just an uncreative author, right? (laughs) Every, Every character just lives the same story. But that's not what happens. This is truth. This is history. He did exactly what his father had done. And I want you to notice this. These occasions that we saw where his father did this were before he was even born. He never, he never watched his father do this in Egypt. He didn't watch his father do this in uh, Philistia. 
Don't you think he probably saw his father do it some other time? The exact same story? The exact same lie for the exact same reason? Whether, whether he sat him down and said, son, here's how you do this. I don't know. But somehow he taught his son this pattern, right? Somehow. And I'll just tell you, because, you know, if you've been a parent, you know, uh, we, we accidentally teach our kids all kinds of stuff, don't we? So uh, the same story, the same action, he tells a lie to a stranger, but this is not a half-truth. She's not his sister. She's his wife. She's not his half-sister. She's his wife. So, he, so his father told half-truths to a stranger for a good reason. He tells a bald-faced lie to a stranger for a good reason, right? And then it keeps going. Because Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, right? And again, I don't want to tell you the whole story, but basically they are twins. Uh, when they're in the womb, uh, it is Esau who is born first, and then Jacob comes out second. And uh, God says, I am going to bless the second born and not the firstborn in this case. And that gives all kinds of theological questions, which are answered later in Romans, and we won't get to that. But he, he says, I'm going to bless Jacob. Jacob is going to become the patriarch. Jacob is going to get the blessing. Jacob is going to get the inheritance, right? And that is the opposite of the way it's done. It always goes to the firstborn son, Okay. And so these twins come out. Jacob is the younger of the twins. And as they grow up, Esau is just like his dad. Esau is a man's man. Esau loves to hunt and fish and chew tobacco and go to football games. That's Esau, right? And he's a big, burly, hairy dude. And he stinks. The Bible says it. He stinks. It says, it says he smells like one who came from outdoors. <laughs> So he has a noticeable odor, right? And his dad loves him. And his dad just can't wait to bless him, regardless of what God said. But then over here is Rebecca, the mom, and, and she loves Jacob. And Jacob is not at all like his twin brother. You would not even know they're brothers, let alone twins. They have nothing in common. Jacob loves to sit with his mom and watch Project Runway, right? <laughs> <laughs> Jacob loves to work in the kitchen. The Bible says he has very smooth skin. He's, he's not this burly, manly dude, right? He smells like oil of Olay. <laughs> and, and, uh, and Esau says, I mean, uh, Jacob says to Esau, listen, I mean, excuse me, excuse me. Isaac says to Esau, listen, I'm about to die. I want you to go out and kill an animal. And then cook me up that stew that I like, bring it to me and feed me and I will bless you and you'll receive the blessing and you'll receive the inheritance. Rebecca overhears this. Esau takes off to go hunting. She goes and gets Jacob and says, here's what I want you to do. Go out to the yard and get one of the animals out of the pen. We're going to kill it. I'll cook the stew. You serve it to dad. But how am I going to serve to dad? He's going to know 
No, he can't see. He's not going to know. Yeah, but I've, I, I'm, I'm smooth. Esau is hairy. Don't worry about it. We'll take care of this. She takes the fur from the animal and scotch tapes it to his arms, right? Gives him the food and he goes in and serves his dad. And his dad hears him and says, are you Jacob or Esau? And he goes, I am your firstborn, the one who's going to get the blessing. And he says, he says, come near to me. And he comes near and he touches him and he smells the animal skin and he goes, huh, the voice of Jacob, but the, the arms of Esau. And he takes the food and he blesses Jacob and Jacob gets the inheritance and Jacob gets the blessing and Jacob becomes the patriarch of the family and Esau comes back later and Jacob lies to him and deceives him and rips him off too. So, we have, first of all, Abraham telling two half-truths to a total stranger for good reason. And then we have Isaac who tells a bald-faced lie to a total stranger for a good reason. And now we have Jacob who lies to his father in a conspiracy of deception in order to steal his brother's blessing because he doesn't trust God enough to keep his promise of giving him the blessing. And now that's just his grandson. And then we get down on another level because Jacob, of course, um, has 11 sons. He ends up with 12, but at this point he has 11 sons and the youngest is Joseph and he loves Joseph. Joseph is his favorite son, right? He gives him the special robe and all of that. He doesn't make him do hardly any work. He just spoils him rotten and his older brothers hate him. And he's always tattling on them. And so one day they're out working in the field and he says to Joseph, hey, go out into the field and check on your brothers and report back to me whether they're working hard or what they're doing, right? Let me know how they're doing. And so when they see him coming, they say, we're going to get this little punk, right? And they come up with a plan and long story short, uh, they end up, there's a passing band of Ishmaelites going to Egypt and they sell him to these guys as a slave and then they take his beautiful coat and they tear it up and they dip it in some animal blood and they bring it back to his dad because there is no forensic department with DNA testing and they bring this thing back and they say, dad, we found this coat. I guess a wild animal must have got Joseph. And his father mourns and weeps and I'll let you come back to find out how the story ends. But I, I want to make one little comment too. Um, who was it that bought him as a slave? The Ishmaelites, the grandchildren of Ishmael. Just another one of Jacob's, I mean, Abraham's indiscretions, right? You see the connections? Abraham's life was connected to other people and other times. Listen. Other people, especially our children, learn from our actions, but they won't hold our boundaries. So what we do matters a lot. Again, kind of depressing, right? But let me leave you with an encouraging reminder, okay? Because the more we read about Abraham, the more I just want to go, dude. Let me remind you this. Abraham goes down in history according to God one of the greatest men of faith who ever lived. I like the way Larry Osborne says it. He says, 
God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. Isn't that good? God, God loves to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. God can take my crooked, messed up life and all this stuff that I do wrong, and if I will just submit to him and let him hold on and let him decide what happens, he can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. Because we all mess up from time to time. But that doesn't mean that God casts us off and gives up on us. Your failures are not your whole story. Some of us, in our own hearts, wear labels that have been put on us 20, 30 years ago from a failure that we had. And we still think of ourselves that way. I'm the, I'm the addict. I'm the ex-con. I'm the divorcee. I'm the whatever. And we think of ourselves oftentimes in terms of our failures. Now listen, I'm the last person who's going to tell you to gloss over your sin and not take it seriously. That's the whole point here, right? But I also want to say this. God doesn't gloss over your sin. By the blood of Jesus Christ, he washes it away. Jesus makes it possible for you to be a former failure, it's not who you have to be from this point on. We were talking about our recovery ministry that we're starting with the men here, the one-step um, recovery ministry. Um, I love the, the concept behind it because I, I've, you know, been, I've had numerous people that I care about who were in recovery, and um, my mother went through a 12-step program that was God used to, to really help her. And I've seen so many people get help from 12-step programs. But here's what I want to say about that. I have a major disagreement with 12-step philosophy because 12-step thinking says, I am my behavior. I, I, I used to drink too much and it was messing up my life and other people's lives. So I am an alcoholic. I haven't had a drink in 35 years, but I am an alcoholic. I used to be a drug addict. I was on the streets and, and I was sticking a needle in my arm every day, but, but I haven't done that for 20 years. And, and I've been clean and sober and I'm back on track, but I am an addict. See, this idea that once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, once an addict, always an addict, like, that's what the 12 steps says. But the Bible says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And, and there is hope in Jesus Christ. He doesn't just set us free from what we used to be. He makes us someone new. We're not just remodeled or revamped or fixed when we come to Jesus. We are born again. And so we need to remember, we may have messed up in a lot of ways. How do we respond when we mess up? Well, we could take a lesson from Peter who denied Jesus three times and Jesus stared him down across the courtyard as he did it. And he broke into tears and he ran away just a broken shell of himself. And the first chance he got to see Jesus, there was Jesus on the, on the shore and he was out in the middle of the lake in the boat. What did he do? He was not willing to wait for the wind to bring him back in. He jumped out of the boat and swam to the shore so he could get restored to Jesus. Or, or think about David. He committed adultery and he committed murder. 
And when the Holy Spirit convicted him of what he had done, he fell on his face before God and took out a pen and wrote Psalm 51, in which he took full responsibility for every aspect of his sin, blamed nobody but himself, and begged God for forgiveness, and then looked forward to moving ahead as a servant of God, and then served God the rest of his life. Or think about Paul, who made his his life's goal to wipe out Christianity by killing and imprisoning Christians. And God stops him in the middle of his journey to Damascus, knocks him down on the ground, and he finds himself flat on his face before Jesus, calling him Lord. And then he gets back up under the power of God and serves the Lord as the apostle to the Gentiles for the rest of his life and writes two-thirds of the New Testament. Listen, your decisions and your actions do have consequences. But God is willing and able to forgive you and to cleanse you and to give you a new start. So my encouragement, let him pick you up and put you back on the path. And don't let your sin become the pattern that will determine your legacy. You get the chance to let God break the chain and start a new one. May our legacies be about a God who can use even crooked sticks like us to change the world. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray together. God, we're so grateful that we can come to you because of the blood of Jesus Christ, because of the sacrifice that you made for us. We can be made clean and new and whole. And Father, we ask you to please Uh, Meet us where we're at. Each and every one of us needs to meet you in a different place right now. And and, and, and we're we're holding on to some baggage, some of us, that I believe you just want to take. I pray we would give it to you. And and some of us, God, have been been weighed down by labels that we've been wearing. God, I pray you just tear those labels off of us and never let them be put back. God, I pray that you would help us. Some of us are actually still in the middle of patterns of sin that need to be broken and we need to be set free so that our legacy would be something different from this point forward. I pray you would do that in our lives as well. For wherever we are, God, meet us there and we will bow at your feet and we'll let you be Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.